Well, again, you know my, I'm enamored with maps. This week, as uh, as I've been studying chapter 10, I just kind of got caught up. Um, If what we've been seeing, here's Jericho, so that was the first battle, and this is the Jordan River right here, so they crossed over into Jericho. We'll look at a better map in a minute. But what I got to thinking about, uh, you know where Katie Mills is? The mall, Katie Mills? You know how far it is? 40 miles. According to GPS, it's 40 miles. 55 by car. Okay? Look at that 50 on this. That's from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. That's how wide Israel is, in essence. You ever drive up 45 and you see the big old statue of Sam Houston, it looks like you're going to drive right into it, right, before the highway curves before you get there. Uh, According to the GPS, 90 miles to Huntsville. So Israel is as big as here to Huntsville and here to Katy, and that's the size of Israel, essentially, with all that's going on over there. That, that just, that struck me uh, as I was uh, looking at these maps. Uh, so here is a picture. This is, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know you don't care, I do. Um, up on the hill is where they were camped as they came up. Moses dies, and so Joshua takes them. Where's my... Joshua takes them down into the valley. They camp at Gilgal right here next to Jericho. They take Jericho, and then the next city, they go up on the hill north of Jerusalem to Ai. That's about 3,500 feet from the basin of the Jordan River Valley to uh, up up the mountain to the next city, uh, Ai. So... Here's a different picture of the same thing. The black is where they started from. They go to camp at Gilgal. They take Jericho. They go up to Ai. So that's how far, that's what the three stars are kind of where they've been, where we've been actually in uh, Joshua. That's the first eight chapters of Joshua at Ai. Uh, Then the next one, the arrows just kind of give us the same picture, except that after they capture Ai, remember they lost first, right? Then they captured Ai. Then they go up to Mount Ebal and build an ta- uh, uh, altar, and they worship God. They take a break from the war, and they worship God. And then they come back, and they camp at Gilgal. Uh, now... Last week, we were in chapter 9. I've just kind of put an outline of chapters 9, 10, and 11. They're kind of a unit together. Uh, Israel without the Lord. Last week, we saw what happened last week. Can you remember? The Gibeonites deceived Joshua and the Israelites and deceived them into a covenant. Uh, Uh, when uh, Joshua, they did not consult with the Lord. 
and they made an unwise covenant vow that they de- de- determined not to break, and so they let the deceitful Gibeonites flee, live, except, but they did bring them into subjection, put them at the bottom of the society. Now, in chapter 10, up to uh, uh, eleven fifteen, we'll see as the Lord deals with Joshua and the Israelites, they trust in him, and the Lord directs them. And we'll see tonight in chapter 10, they take the south end of uh, Canaan, and then chapter 11, it'll be the north end, the northern campaign of Canaan. But what they're doing is they are, uh, there's the Gibeonites, as the Gibeonites come after they take Jericho and Ai, they're beginning to build this wall or this conquer these cities. The Gibeonites see them coming, so they go to, Jer- to Gilgal, make the covenant with them in chapter 9. And so uh, ultimately they put uh, Gibeon in subjection. So now this line of Israel conquering the, Can- the, the promised land is... is continuing on. And so they have built sort of this central box. You know, the Dead Sea's here. The Sea of Galilee, of course, will be up here. And so they're building uh, this. They're taking over, essentially, the heart of Canaan. They're really dividing uh, Canaan between north and south. And so I put a star there because... What we see in chapter 10 is the king of Jerusalem sees the danger uh, as they are beginning to be cut off from the north as Canaan is being divided. So we're in chapter 10. Uh, Israel's dominating this section, if you will, the central, the plateau. They're up on the on the mountain, or on the plateau, and they have they're building this wedge between the north and the south. Chapter ten of Joshua. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction. Doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. Remember, there were five cities in the metropolitan complex of Gibeon. Uh, And so Adonai Zedek king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, to Debir, king of Eglon, Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, king of Hebron, king of Jarmuth, king of Lachish, king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. So there they are. These five kings have now come up 
against Gibeon to protect themselves, really. Uh, and that's what we have there, the, the alliance that approaches Gibeon. Verse 6, And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. So at least they're admitting to be servants of Israel. And they say, you have made a covenant, and you need to protect us, your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up to Gilgal, up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And we'll stop there. So uh, the Gibeonites come to them ask for help, <coughs> and so they leave Gilgal. Orange is, is the Israelites. They leave Gilgal and come to Gibeon to fight against, the, uh, against these, this five-army Amorite army from, uh, led by the king of Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 9, so Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. Then they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon. The Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiel and Ezekiel, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So Gibeon says, "Help!" Gibeon cries out uh, for help, and so Joshua acts. Verse seven, under the Lord's direction. Verse eight, the Lord said to Joshua, "Don't fear." So uh, the Lord assures them, I have given them into your hands. So the Lord is with them in this battle, unlike when they made their compact with the, their covenant with the Gibeonites when it says clearly that the Lord was, they did not consult the Lord. Well, the Lord is with them here in uh, verse 8, I've given them into your hands. And essentially what he says here, he said in chapter 1, uh, in chapter Joshua 1.5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, as the Lord speaks to Joshua. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. God gives them the same assurance there in uh, verse 8. Uh, so God reassures or God's usual way of reassuring is not with some new revelation. They're in a situation, they're in a new situation, but he gives them the same promises that he gave them before. Uh, it's not just something new. It, it takes on new uh, application 
in the particular situation they're in right here. Before, they were going up against Jericho as he uh, sent them out from the east of the Jordan, across the Jordan to take Jericho. Now he gives them the same essential uh, reassurance and promise, but it takes on new meaning as they're going to go fight against five kings led by the Jerusalem king. Today, that's the usual way God works in the Old Testament in Bible times. Today, that's the only way he works, is to assure us, remind us of his promises. There's no new revelation for us to ever gain. These, Joshua was getting new revelation, if you will, as the Lord directed him through Canaan. Today, the only way is that we uh, hide God's word in our heart. The Holy Spirit takes it, reminds us of it, uh, and brings to mind what we know of the scriptures, and it's the old promises of God that are always new for every situation. So there's no new truth to be revealed, only old truth freshly applied to new situations in our life. Uh, and verse 9, so Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. So God's assurance that they're going to win the victory did not... Um, uh, stymie Joshua's uh, war methods, if you will. It stimulates his leadership, and so he has a battle plan that we're going to go up at night. We're going to surprise them. We're going to come upon them suddenly. The victory will be won through this night march as they march all night and a surprise attack. Um, Maybe in the dark, maybe not in the dark, but at least they travel in the dark. But I just put a note right here. God's sovereign control of the circumstances of the nation, of the life of the nation, did not undermine his own people and their actions. So though God has assured them, God is going to use them as his instrument to win the victory he will win for them. But, you know, the, the, the objection to the sovereignty of God very often is, well, why bother? Why not just be passive people and let God do his business? Well, that's a bad understanding of the sovereignty of God a bad understanding of the responsibility of God's people. So Joshua has a battle plan and it's clandestine or it's a night raid that they're going to suddenly come upon them. Chapter uh, verse 10 is interesting. Let's read it closely and someone's going to tell me that you have a difference in your Bible. Maybe. Verse 10. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Ezekiel and Makeda. Anybody got something different? Okay, 
Look at the four verbs. Four verbs in there, verse 10. Uh, The Lord threw them into a panic, right? That's our first verb, threw into a panic. Second verb, chased them. Oh, struck them, then chased them, and then struck them. All right? Now, who um, threw them into a panic? Okay, the Lord. Who struck, chased, and struck? Who? The Lord. (laughs) In the English translation of the ESV, in the in the of the ESV, the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. Who struck them? Right. It doesn't ask the question. It says, Israel, who struck them? If you have the LSB, if you have the New American, if you have the King James, it simply says something to the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, struck them with a great blow, chased them, and then struck them again. So there's a translator decision to put who in there when it's most likely not there. So, um, the Lord, this is the warrior for Israel on Israel's behalf. God as the warrior, the one fighting the battle, using Israel as his means. Yeah, he said, I've given them into your hands, right? What's that? Well, you have a note in your ESV, or, and he, which would, if it doesn't say who, it says the Lord of Israel and he, you know, yeah. So it's, it's, it's indefinite, really, there. And so the translators here make us think it's Israel. But it seems to be God, and because of what's already been said and how we'll proceed through this. In, in fact, who, who that's there is the ESV, the NIV, and the Net Bible. Uh, otherwise, the, there's either nothing or he that refers to God. Uh, it would be the New American, the King James, New King James. Uh, so anyway... And then verse 11, well, uh, he chased them by way of the ascent of Beth Horon, struck them as far as Ezekiel and Makeda, and as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones. That's clearly the Lord who rains hailstones on these people, kills some of them, but not all of them, on the way down the slope uh, 
like he did in Egypt. One of the commentators keeps going back to Egypt and the likenesses to Egypt here as we get even farther. I don't have the uh, slide that we could have, but uh, so, so they chase them, and here's their route. You see, they chase them down Horan. Now we're going back off this plateau here, off the hill country, down into the uh, more lowlands that lead over to the Mediterranean Sea. They chase them to Beth Horon as they're going down the slopes here. The hailstones come. They come to Azekah, and then they come to Makeda. The, brown, the black line there is uh, the enemy, and we'll see that Joshua will just chase them down. Uh, let's see, anything else? So from Azekah to Makeda, he throws the hailstones. More die from the sword. Look at verse, at the end of verse 11, there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So the emphasis is upon the Lord as God, the warrior who is fighting the battle. He's just using Israel. <coughs> 45 pounds each? Yeah, that wouldn't feel good. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So it just seems like the like the author's wanting us to see the Lord as the fighter, as the one who is the victor, who bring who crushes the enemy. Um, uh, and uh, here's what uh, Dale Ralph Davis says here. He says often the idea of God or Christ as a warrior who fights for his people is lost. Uh, too many regard this concept of God and Christ as a warrior. Too many regard this concept as substandard by which he meant, or they mean, it does not fit their sentimental 21st century graven images of what God ought to be like. And he says they do the same for the Lord Jesus. He's portrayed as kind, tender, soft, and then he says their their Jesus reeks of hand cream. It's just kind of, I mean, being a little sarcastic, but at the same time, he's saying it just doesn't fit the true picture of God, but it kind of gets at our sentimental views of Jesus being kind and, you know, God of the Old Testament being mean and even don't even like that God did it here. It was Israel who brutalized these Canaanites. Um, so, he says, you know, if we want to strengthen, if we want to be strengthened against the enemy, we need a strong God. Psalm 24, who is this king of glory? There's a catechism here. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Or we can read uh, Revelation 11, right? Jesus riding on a white horse. I mean, 19, uh, verses 11 through 16, Jesus coming out of uh, riding on a horse, uh, and he's coming in righteousness to judge and make war. This is the God who is fighting for Joshua and the Israelites as they are taking this, uh, con conquering the land of Canaan. And is this strong Savior who should instill in us hope as we think of him in that 
way that he can do these things. When we know the Lord fights for us and sometimes without us, we hope of triumphing through uh, life. And life is full of stuff. Anything? Will? Yes, Craig. Just whenever I think of Israel conquering the land of Canaan and slaughtering Canaanites, I remember that a bunch of them, particularly the Amorites, were Moloch worshipers and participated in child sacrifice and a lot of other horrible things that made them guilty in God's eyes. Yes, they were definitely not innocent. They were guilty worshiping Molech and other gods, sacrificing their children. And if they don't take these people out, God says, you'll do the same thing when you begin to live with them. And what do they do? They end up sacrificing. They don't clear them out. They do some, but not all the way. So, uh, yes. So we're at verse 12, another interesting passage. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord. So Joshua is in communion with God through this. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, and so this is at the same time they're fighting this battle. Uh, It's not this is after the battle, and they've chased them all down south, and now they're going to, this is at the same time. While this battle, Joshua spoke to the Lord, In the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over the sons of Israel, he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set. For about a whole day, there's been no, no day like it before or since. When the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So, um, uh, the question arises. At least it arises in some commentators. Did the sun come up and it stay light longer? Or did the sun stop before it came up to fight in the dark? To elongate or prolong the darkness? The common view, uh, and, and this is from three different commentators that I'm using, that I read today, they all hold the same, say the same thing. Did Joshua ask for an extension of daylight so he could finish the job with these five kings? Uh, And 13, verse 13, is the best support for that at the end. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set before a whole day. Or for a whole day. Um, Another view is that as they're approaching... Joshua prays and asks for an extension of darkness for the very same reason. 
the, to win the battle in the dark and in the surprise, to extend the darkness. Uh, and the, uh, they go through some gyrations. You have to go through gyrations to hold to the darkness view because of verse 13, right? But uh, they, the, the, the idea, let me see what I put. Let's see. Okay, stand still. You got stand still in verse 12. Uh, Joshua spoke to the Lord, and then he prays to God, and then he commands. That's, yeah. Uh, So Joshua prays, be still, be silent. Is he seeking to prohibit the movement or the shining of the sun? And that word's... Uh, some of the words here can and can be made to say shining, and so the sun doesn't shine, though it goes its course. It doesn't shine. You have to do that to hold to the darkness view. Um, we simply realize that Gideon is in the east, where the mm-hmm. sun rises. Mm-hmm. is to the west. Yeah. Where, where the moon rises, mm-hmm. where these things happen. There are, there are cycles where you have both sun and moon at the same time. There are times of the month when you can walk out in the daylight and see the moon yeah. in the early morning or at dark or at dusk. And it could have been that period where both the sun stood still and the moon stood still. You'd be in the right orientations to do that. You don't have to go through any gyrations. One, yeah, one Rather time. than just thinking high noon or high midnight, which is yeah. typically when we say day, we think high noon and we think the dark of, of midnight. It may have been that, that twilight period where you have both. But then it's just a natural event. Well, no. Right? The fact that it stayed that way for a day is not a natural event. Oh, okay. All the right. timing of it, you, you yeah. have that occur. Yeah, one, one, comment, one commentator found out that and somewhere he dug in and found out that the root for the word, uh, for one of the words, is the same as eclipse. And so he says it's an eclipse that just continued. You know, I don't know. We don't know. But does it matter? Does it matter? No, it really doesn't matter whether it's darkness or da- I like the idea of darkness because I hadn't heard that before. You know, the same things that I say, we, we don't want to pay too much attention just because something's new. There's something uh, uh, enamoring sometimes about a new idea, and so I'm trying to make it fit, but you sure got to go through gyration. And it really doesn't matter. In the, in, in, these are the things that they'll write a book about. Darkness versus daylight, and do all these long extensions of ancient Hebrew that we don't know as much as we think we know about. Yeah. Some marvelous calculate. Some marvelous scientists found out we miscalculated. Right. Yeah, uh huh. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. I had. So, anyway, we get to the bottom, though. Uh, 
For the sun stopped 13 in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set before a whole day, or it did not hurry to set out or to set for about a whole day, or as on a completed day, as on a normal day. But um, verse 14, there has been no day like it before or since. There you go. Darkness or daylight, no matter. No, it's a, a <laughs> you know, a, a, a more unique day. No, there's no such thing as a more unique day. It's a unique day, right? Yes, James. Well, it seemed like it was a sign, you know, that they would say, well, the sun stops. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't it, wouldn't it be the world that stops? <laughs> well, they didn't know so Copernicus the yet. The sun doesn't Yeah, well, again. You see, the sun rises. We still say that. You, you. I just got asked this more last, yesterday. When does the sun rise? Yeah. Never. <laughs> yeah, I know. Don't. Uh-huh. Well, no. It's just almost like trying to say, you know, how does the Lord calculate all that? I mean, you know, He's God. He, he what? He's God. He's God. He's God. Yes. Okay. Don't worry. Beyond us. This uh, a unique day. We know that. But notice what he says, how the author, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Here's our, again, the Lord is fighting this battle. The battle is the Lord's. He just, we're privileged to be a part, to be used in the midst. So, the Lord fought. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. So, is it not written in the book of Jeshur? Know that? Nobody knows where the book of Jeshur is. It's mentioned one other time. It's mentioned when um, uh, David is writing a poem or a lament over the death of Saul and Jonathan in 2 Samuel. So maybe it's a book of songs or poems. It's mentioned twice, but we don't have it. We don't know. But whatever the main point is, whatever the situation, the main point is, it's a unique day. The Lord listened to Joshua He listened to his prayer. Not a unique day because this is the only day he listened to Joshua. It's a unique day because the sun stopped in some form or fashion at some point in time. But it's a unique, but the Lord does listen. He, he speaks to the Lord, prays to the Lord, directs the elements to stop, and the Lord listens. And that's pretty amazing. God listens to every, somebody I was talking, I was in conversation Sunday. Someone said, you know, all the people, all the Christians in the world are praying. And the Lord hears every one of them. That's, mm. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, 
who looks far down on the heavens and earth. He hears us. He stoops to us to hear us as we call on him. Psalm 91, 15, when he calls to me, God's saying, I will answer. I will answer him. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We have a God who hears. And then back to Gilgal. There, that last line across as they go back to Gilgal. Now they have the, there's some folks left in Ezekiel, and, or in Makeda, not in uh, Ezekiel. Verse 16, these five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave, of Makeda, in the cave of, at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. So Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by them by it to guard them. So he said, we're not going to mess with them right now. We'll just stick them in the cave. We'll seal the cave, keep a watch. Um, and verse 19, do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Need to clean up the mess, clean up whatever we left. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So, they're hiding in Makeda. They're trapped now in Makeda. And he sends the rest of the army to clean up the route that's happened, began at uh, Beth Horon, wipes out the Canaanite army. Though some, verse 20 when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, so some escaped and got into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. So now they're all camped at Makeda. They have a military camp. They've... Uh, any remnants that are obvious, they've taken care of along these, this line. And now they're back at Makeda. Verse 22, Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with them, come near, put your feet on the necks of those kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. What's he doing? In a submissive posture. Uh, a, a, a dramatization of the fact that they have the Canaanites in submission for assurance for the future for the army, the chiefs. He's got these chiefs there They're standing on the necks of these kings as a show of God's 
miraculous power in bringing them in this conquest. Yes, James, you want to say something? You talked about how God is going to put all the enemies of Jesus under his feet, under his footstool. Yes, they'll become his footstool. Yes, yes. But that's not the end of it. Verse 25, 26. Oh, 25. Joshua said to the men, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on the five trees, on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees, threw them, threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. Not today, but the day when we're reading, when the author's writing it, right? Uh, same thing happened somewhere else, the king of Ai. They didn't hang them to kill them. They killed them and then hung them as a show of what happens to criminals, what happens to evil people. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Uh, now that, you know, they had to, if it was an Israelite that they, executed capital punishment in, the law said to cut him down before the sun went down. They didn't have to do that, but they did that in uh, the dignity even for these pagans for their bodies, I guess. For, to, and they bury them. They don't just leave them. They bury them. But still there to this day. It's the fifth monument that Israel, that God has had Israel to make. You remember they crossed the Jordan and there's a heap of stones to remind them of God parting the Jordan River. Then the Jericho, there's a monument of stones. Ai, burned to the ground and a monument is there. Um, I'm missing one in my mind. What's the other one? Oh, they go up to Bethel. And they, Shechem, where Abraham was first given the promise of the land of Canaan being for the Israelites. And Jacob returns to Shechem, there up where Mount Ebal was. Uh, and now here's another monument to the victory that God has won for Israel. And it's there to this day in that cave of Makeda where these five kings are buried as a monument to the power of the Lord God of Israel. We'll stop there because uh, the next 15 verses, 16 verses from 28 to 43 just records the history of the conquering of the end of the, the rest of the south end of Canaan before chapter 11 goes and, and recites the narrative of taking the north. And then we get into some more uh, 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 details of Israel occupying the land of Canaan. Any questions? Any comments? Where, uh, 
sundial still worked. Um, you know, I mean, probably, yeah. We sure thought, well, never mind. That's enough. Anybody else? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminders that you give us. The promises of your word. Lord, you call us to meditate upon them day and night and then to do them so that we might follow your way, that we might be prosperous and successful. Not looking for prosperity materially, but, Father, looking for spiritual prosperity in our lives. And we thank you that we live on this side of the cross, that we have the Spirit indwelling And he is the one who reminds us. He is the one who instructs us. He is the one who convicts us. Convicts us of our sin. Convicts us of righteousness. We have no model of righteousness. The Lord Jesus is gone. But we have your word that teaches us righteousness, convicts us of judgment, of impending judgment on all who refuse to believe, convinces us that that is truth. And Lord, that we'll give an answer one day. We'll answer for our lives, lives of forgiven Sins, lives that are full of deeds that you've cast behind your back, that you've covered with your blood, with the blood of Christ. And we thank you for these assurances that we have. Father, remind us that you hear us when we cry. In Jesus' name, amen.